Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have this privilege to open your word, to worship you in your word. Dear Father, please help us to surrender ourselves and allow your word, your spirit, to work in us for your glory. We pray for anyone in this room or under the sound of this worship in the word that you would, there's someone that does not know the Lord Jesus that even, even in this period of time you would bring them to surrender, to repentance, and to trust Jesus Christ as their only Lord and only Savior, that they might have life, that they might have it eternally and abundantly. I pray, Father, for each believer, myself included, that we would continuously learn how to submit ourselves to you for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you familiar with the expression, at the end of the day? Probably some of you hate it. It's like a, it's a little annoying to some. Um, here's an illustration of how the phrase could be used. There you are at a car dealership trying to get a good price on your car and a good price on the car that um, you're buying. So a good trade-in value for your vehicle and a good purchase value for the one that you want to buy. And You're working this this deal and you know first you're trying to get a good price on their vehicle or a good price on yours and then you you switch it up and and the salesman will say to you well I can give you five hundred more dollars for your vehicle if you really want but at the end of the day I'm just gonna take it and add it to the price of the new vehicle because there's a certain margin that we have to work within I have to make this much money on the vehicle or it's a, not a deal so have it how you want. I'll give you $500 off of this and $500 um, less for your vehicle or $500 more for your vehicle and $500 more for the car. At the end of the day, it's the same price. Well, we've arrived at one of those at the end of the days. We've been meditating our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we have heard Solomon making many, many proclamations, laying out proverbial wisdom and that which seems to run contrary to proverbial wisdom at times, we've come to the end of it and he's going to say, at the end of the day, here's what we need. Here's what we need. Solomon is wrapping up this monumental composition. In it, he has expressed the frustration that life presents in it, he has expressed the limitations of this world. He has expressed the wisest ways to navigate through this transient world. And he has also presented to us the reality that there is more, there is more than living under the sun. There is more beyond the sun. There is a God who superintends over this transient experience that we face on the earth. There is a God who 
will one day hold us accountable before him, Solomon now turns us to that reality at the end of the day. As he approaches the final charge, Solomon characterizes the nature of his written work and calls his readers to action. The first item in verses 9 through 12 is that God offers wisdom that moves us and stabilizes us. God offers wisdom that moves us and stabilizes us. We see this beginning in verse 9, and we're going to just work our way through this. We can't stop and meditate anywhere along this first portion of our discussion until we get to the one shepherd that's vital for our consideration. In verse 9, what we want to notice as he's characterizing this wisdom of this composition is that he tells us, verse 9, this wisdom is a careful, proverbial wisdom. Careful, proverbial wisdom. Verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing, studying, and arranging Many proverbs with great care. There's a lot there. He lets us know that this is a presentation of truth, knowledge. He lets us know that he weighed this, he thought this through. He weighed each element of life as he presented it. He studied, he studied, he researched before laying it out. And then he carefully arranged this proverbial literature with great care. This is characterizing the nature of the work. As we get to verse 10, we'll recognize that this work is delightful, righteous, and truthful wisdom. It is delightful, righteous, and truthful wisdom. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight. Those, that word is kafetz. It means acceptable, pleasing, delightful. Uh, he sought to lay out Words that were acceptable, pleasing, and delightful. He did this in an upright way. Uprightly, he wrote, what did he write? Words of truth. This is not hypothesis. This is reality. These are truths, one after another. You can find yourself twisted in knots trying to figure out what he's saying, but what he has said is truth. And we need to embrace it. As we move a little further, he lets us know that this wisdom, this truth, this composition was to move people. It says in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. You know what a goad is? Basically a stick with a sharp point on the end. Get moving. Bam. It's a, we would say it's a, a, a swift kick in the pants. Or, here you are, you've been running all day, you're sweaty and, and exhausted, and you're laying there, and someone takes a cold bucket of water and dumps it on you, kind of gets you uh, revitalized, moving. Don't stay as you are. These proverbs, these truths, are to move you to action. God's wisdom moves people. Further, this wisdom 
establishes or stabilizes. We're in verse 11 still. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed. Like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. If you are a carpenter, when you work out your design and you lay it out, things generally work well because you know what you're doing. You take those nails and you drive it in and it holds it firmly. Some of us are less skilled than that and we try to put nails in and sometimes they move and they're not what they're supposed to be and we have a racked, a racked item and it's not quite what it should be. Uh, that's not that great. Uh, sometimes our, our nails or our screws move a little bit and then other times we don't want them to because we're trying to take something apart and they fight us tooth and nail. Those are the ones that are firmly fixed. The idea here is as the truth of God moves, it fixes in place. Isn't that exactly what Paul said to the church at Ephesus about the job of the pastors and elders of a church? That they are to communicate the truth, equipping the saints so that they can do the work of the ministry until they're all, all of us, are mature in the image of Christ so that we are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Isn't that exactly what he's telling us? You need to be established in the faith. Oh, Solomon says, you, you read this, it'll move you and it will stabilize you. He's presented so many philosophies of how a person can navigate through life, and he has told us this will not work. This just will not do. This will not work the way you're going. If you try to live a life that disregards the Creator, you live as a fool. And you will find small little joys here and there, but you will not find everlasting pleasure. And you will one day meet a Creator and you will not like what you experience. These truths move us, and they fix us. Why? Why would I go to anyone else for eternal life? Jesus has the words of life. To whom else shall we go? Solomon says, this will stick you in the right location. It will stabilize you. And he lets us know that this wisdom is not simply done by his research and studying, though that was involved. This wisdom comes from God. The end of verse 11, he says, they are given by, what does it say? One shepherd. One more time. One shepherd. It is Solomon calling himself the shepherd. I suppose it's possible if you want to just disregard other things that he has said, both in this book and elsewhere. But I don't think anyone here thinks that he's talking about himself. He's talking about God as the one shepherd. Take a look, please, at the book of Proverbs, chapter 2. Proverbs, chapter 2. Consequently, Proverbs was written by whom? Solomon. Solomon, chapter 2. Please notice verses 6, 7, and 8. Proverbs 2, 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. Who? The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He, the Lord, stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He, 
The Lord is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his, the Lord's, saints. The Lord gives wisdom. The wisdom that Solomon presents while it was researched and lived out came as a result of God the Spirit carrying him along as he did every other author of Scripture. And so we have sacred writing as we read through the book of Ecclesiastes. Take a look, please, at the book of John, John chapter 10. A shepherd, a shepherd leads rather than drives. And this exactly is what our God does for us. He leads us along. And the Lord Jesus, speaking about himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10, take a look at verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own. No, me, I wonder, friend, do you know him? Do you know him? Verse 15, just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The Lord Jesus says, I lead them along, they hear my voice, they follow me, they follow me. Do you know him? The one shepherd gives what we need. Who was David's shepherd? The Lord. And what did David's shepherd do? In Psalm 23, verses 2 through 4, it says, The the Lord, he, makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When we think back in Ecclesiastes 12, as you turn back there, please, when we think of God laying out wisdom for us, he doesn't lay it out for us in any other way than the shepherd of our souls. The shepherd of our souls. This is the way life works. This is how I created the world. This is how I created you. You have deviated from the path. This is what I have done for you to bring you into the fold. I will lead you where you need to come. It is he, the one shepherd, that gives us the vital truth and wisdom that we so desperately, desperately need. So Solomon, as he concludes this book, reminds us that it is God himself who offers this wisdom, and this wisdom moves us to action, and it stabilizes us in the midst of difficulty. Have you experienced that stability in the midst of difficulty? Maybe you've been shaken. I can tell you where to go. I can tell you where to go, but you can set your feet on a rock, a rock that will not give, 
no matter how hard the winds may blow and how difficult the rolling waves may crash in, when you set your feet on that rock, you will be stabilized. Because it is God, the one shepherd, who gives us this truth. And it is that one shepherd that holds us in his care. As Solomon moves a little further, God offers wisdom that is sufficient for guiding life. Look at verse 12. Ecclesiastes 12, 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. God has provided for us a reservoir, a large well of truth. And the Bible tells us in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, that it is by his divine power that he has granted to us all things, all things, not some things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. God has provided us this large reservoir of truth, and yet so many want to try to go beyond it, to find their solutions outside of it. But remember this. The one who created you is the one who knows you. He knows what you need. He knows what to send your way. And he knows what to withhold from you. He's shepherding you through this life. Look to him. Find your solutions in him. It is enough. God provides us with what we need to move us and stabilize us. As he moves to the last section, verses 13 and 14, Solomon lets us know that God calls us to a worship that produces fruit. God calls us to a worship that produces fruit. Take a look at verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, or this is man's all. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The end of the matter. This is the end of the day discussion. He says, after, after you consider all the ways that one has sought after pleasure and satisfaction and a way to, to make life make sense. When everything is considered after all of the research, all of the trials, all of the exhibitions, when it's all said and done, there's only one real solution. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole, this is the entirety of man. This is all of man. This is what God sets before us as a people. Fear me and follow me. Fear me and do as I've told you. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is everything for man. This is not the first time that Solomon has uh, told us to fear God in this work. I want us to, to notice a number of them. Take a look back in chapter 3. 
We're in Ecclesiastes. Take a look at chapter 3 and verse 14. Solomon writes, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. Will you read the rest with me? So that people fear before him. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5. Verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. Read please with me. But God is the one you must fear. Look at chapter 7. He didn't save a surprise for the end. He's been driving at this the whole way. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withdraw not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Self-righteousness and self-wisdom. Take a look now at chapter 8 and verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Why? Because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. Why? Because he does not fear Before God, there is an end of everyone's life. Fear God. He's been driving at it from the beginning of this work. Fear God. The Bible tells us in Psalm 111 in verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it, the fear of the Lord, have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then in Proverbs 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. He's telling us to fear the Lord. Now there are so many places we can turn to and we don't have time for all of them. I'd encourage you later on today to read Psalm 34. As you get to the middle of Psalm 34, you'll hear the psalmist say, let me teach you the fear of the Lord. It's very interesting. Peter quotes it in his first epistle. But I do want you, if you would, please, to to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 36. Excuse me, not Proverbs, Psalm 36. There's no such thing as Proverbs 36. Psalm 36. Psalm 36 is an incredible treatise on the fear of the Lord. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, quotes this passage in the book of Romans, chapter 3, where God is proving the point through the Apostle Paul that everyone, that's you and me, everyone stand, stands guilty before God. He quotes this psalm. In that passage, proving that we stand guilty before the Lord. Here's the psalmist, David, writing on the fear of the Lord. Verse 1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Transgression speaks, sin speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. We call that guilt. There's an experience of guilt. Why? 
because there is no fear of God before his eyes. Because there is no fear of God in his eyes, there is an experience of guilt in the heart of the sinner. Verse 1. As you move to verse 2, we'll recognize that there is an ignorance or denial of sin because of a lack of fearing the Lord. Verse 2. For he, the one who doesn't fear the Lord, flatters himself. He's arrogant in himself. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. First of all, he's, he's ignorant of his sin. He's denying his sin. And he refuses to think that someone will hold him accountable for it. A person that doesn't fear the Lord denies the existence of sin. There's no right and wrong. That's subjective. You you can't tell me that that boys are boys and girls are girls. You can't simply tell by anatomy that a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. What is the matter with you? I will just have you know that there's been thousands of years of human existence. And it's not until now that we've come to this enlightenment. Everyone before this generation were just ignorant fools. Isn't isn't that what's essentially being said at this point? Because of the lack of a fear of God, there there is no recognition of sin as sin, and no recognition that I have sinned. And if there's no recognition that I have sinned, how can I recognize that I have fallen short of the glory of God? And if there's no recognition of sin, how can I recognize that the wages of sin is death? Why would I turn from my sin if there's no sin? This is a corruption of our world. This is a corruption of our sinful heart. This is a corruption that comes from Satan. This arises, my friends, from a lack of fearing God. Ignorance and denial of sin. Verse 3. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. Fearing, a lack of fearing God results in wickedness and deceit in word. Trouble is a word can be translated wickedness. And deceit obviously is to twist the truth. The end of the verse He'll let us know that the result of not fearing God is foolishness in thought and action. It says, he has ceased to act wisely and do good. Not fearing God changes what we perceive as right. It changes what we perceive as good. It changes what we perceive as wise. Then in verse 4, There is a conspiracy to compound wickedness. Verse 4, he plots trouble while in his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. He's letting us know that there's actually so much working in the heart of one who doesn't fear God that he is fighting, fighting to find ways to do what he wants, justifying his actions, and as a result, his his actions are fraught with things that are contrary to God and his will and his wisdom. A lack of fearing God. He's just described it. 
very, very well. God is not sovereign. God does not determine truth. God has no say. I will do as I say, for I am my own man. A lack of fearing God results in distortion of reality. There is a beautiful, beautiful transition. The perspective changes here from the eyes of the one who does fear God. As we read verses 5 through 10, I want you to notice how David's eyes are focused upon his creator, his sustainer, his redeemer, and the fountainhead of life. Listen to how he, he transitions your steadfast love. Well, before it was me, 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 I, 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 how I think, how I do things. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast. You save, O Lord. How precious, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Steadfast love is one of the most beautiful Hebrew words. He's talking about God's covenant loyalty, his steadfast faithfulness, the fact that in his mercy and in his love, he will not turn back from those who are his. The one who knows who God is, they don't think about, what can I get? What can I do? How can I live my life my way? They think, God, you, you're so loyal and faithful and merciful and kind. Your righteousness is consistent. There's nothing you do that's wrong. You never vary from what's right. You always, you live in righteousness. You dwell in righteousness. You issue righteousness. You do righteousness. Oh God, let me taste. Let me taste all of your goodness. Let me feel all that you are. Let me have the feast that comes from knowing and loving and realizing and worshiping you. Lord, don't let me lose it. There's nothing like it. This comes, this comes from knowing who God is. God, send your loving kindness. Continue your steadfast love. Let me have, let me have some of that water that'll make me never thirst again. Fearing God is worshiping God. And that worship of God comes as a result of knowing him exactly who he is. God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself very clearly in the scriptures, in the world. And if you know him, he's revealed himself in you. You can feel it. I'm not talking about feeling God. I'm talking about feeling. You know from your inner being 
that God is real, that God is alive, that God is good, that God is right, that God is sustaining and fulfilling, and he is pleasures forevermore. You know it because you've experienced it, because you've feasted at his table. Fear the Lord. Fear God. There's nothing better. The fear of the Lord turns our natural ways upside down. Instead of being racked with guilt, we know that we stand forgiven in verse 1. Instead of speaking arrogantly about our sin, we repent and we are accepted. Instead of speaking words of wickedness and deceit, we speak words of edification and truth. Instead of playing the fool, we are guided by the wisdom of God and live accordingly. Instead of plotting new ways to sin, we are aligning ourselves with the purposes, plans, and proclamations of God. When we rightly view God, we seek to fully surrender to him. And the result of this surrender is not only a desire to obey God, fear God and keep his commandments. It's not only a desire to obey God, but it is the power of God that enables us to obey. Solomon is not offering you and I moral advice. He is telling us to worship God. And the result will be that we will keep his commandments. Worshiping God, fearing God results in the keeping of his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. I want to ask you some questions. Just think, think through this. It's all from Psalm 36. Have you experienced the steadfast love of God as described in verse 5, verse 7, and verse 10? Have you taken refuge in the shadow of his wings as is described in verse 7? How precious is your steadfast love, O God, the children of man take refuge in the shadow. Where does the shadow come from? Well, there's light, there's a wing, and where are you? Under it. Where do you take your refuge? Under him? Under him? Under him? Fear God under him. He's God, I'm not. He's God, you're not. I don't get to determine what's right and wrong how things go, how things don't go. I don't get a chance to, to straighten what God has made crooked or make crooked what God has made straight. I can't do it. It's not my job. What do I do? Take refuge under the shadow of his wing or in the shadow of his wing, under his wing. Have you feasted from his abundance? They, those who fear God, feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. 
Have you feasted from his abundance? He is the fountain of life. He is the fountain of life. Do you remember just a, a couple weeks ago, maybe last week, the week before, I don't remember, we looked at Jeremiah chapter 2. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God calls himself the fountain of living waters. Jesus also refers to himself as an inexhaustible supply. In John chapter 4, in verse 10, he says this, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you, what does it say? Living water. Why? Because he is the fountainhead of living water. He is the living water. Verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God is the fountain of life. It is from him that we receive these mercies described in verses 5 through 7 of Psalm 36. It is from him that these merciful graces are given. May I ask you to do this? May I ask you to ask God for these experiences of his grace? Believers, you can ask the Lord, Lord, let me sense your steadfast love. Let me, let me feel it. Let me be overwhelmed by your faithfulness. Dear God, let me rejoice in your righteousness. Let me experience the good of your righteousness. Lord, let me feast in your house and let me experience, take a drink from the well that will never leave me parched, that will never leave me thirsty, will always sustain me and satisfy me. Dear God, let me let me experience these graces. Without receiving God's grace, you will not and cannot fear God. Try as you might. Oh God, it says to fear you. Here I am. I will fear you. No, God, help me to fear you. I need your grace to minister in me so I can not only desire to fear you, but actually fear you. We need God's grace. Without God's grace, you will not and you cannot keep his commandments. It is not possible. You will fail. And if you fail at one point, James says, you are guilty of the whole thing. The whole thing. If you do not fear God, as a result, you will not keep his commandments. Solomon wants to let us know that we will not be ready in that context. We will not be ready to face the judgment of God. Everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or bad. Good or evil. When will the end of the day come? At the end of the day. When will the end of the day come? Can you list with certainty when you will breathe your last breath? Can you determine of your own uh, expertise when Jesus will return? When will the end of the day be? 
no one on earth knows. God knows. It would be the wisest approach to life to prepare yourself for that day. This is what Solomon has told us. At the end of the day, get ready. All the feasting, you'll have gotten fat, but it won't sustain you. Once you don't breathe anymore, your body will decay. All the joys that come with having beautiful yards and pools and servants, people doing all your bidding, at some point you're not going to need anyone to fan you any longer and feed you grapes because it won't do you any good. You can't chew and you're not hot. Not there. Are you ready for that day to come? There's only one way to truly be prepared. You see, the whole Bible gives testimony to the reality that me and my ways run in opposition to God and his ways. That I must, when confronted with this reality of my sin, repent, turn from my sin. That's not going to do me any good. This will not sustain me and satisfy me, get me anywhere I need. Turn from your sin and receive mercy and grace to, to have life abundantly from the Lord Jesus. Why? Jesus, Jesus also lived. He lived on this earth for some period of 30-some years. And every demand of the law he met, at all times he feared God, he kept every command, and then he laid down his life as a once-for-all, satisfying sacrifice for my sin and for yours. Turn from your sin that doesn't satisfy. Turn to Jesus for life that will eternally satisfy you. Solomon has brought us to the end. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole of man. For God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it's good or evil. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Will you ask God to help you fear him, worship him? And that worship springs forth into fruit. That's how we have phrased this last point, remember? God calls us to a worship that produces fruit. The worship first, the fruit flows out. Not the fruit flows out so that we'll learn how to worship. Not keep his commandments so you'll learn how to fear God. Not keep his commandments because you're afraid that he's going to torture you. That's not it. The call is to see God for who he is. Worship him. Seek his grace. He will change you. And you will. You will keep his commandments. Because it's him at work in me. Let's pray together. Father, I don't know uh, who needs to hear what at this point, but you do. And so I beg you by your spirit to move in each one of us as you see fit. We commit ourselves and this time to you for your glory. Please, 
accomplish your fruitful work. In Jesus' name, amen.